That's great, Kathy. Thank you so much. Amen? Amen. God's good, isn't He? Well, I want you to take your Bibles, and Robbie was near where I'm going to be this morning. I asked him to read there in Romans 12. Let's go to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, and I'll be reading a few verses here. I want to remind you, as Robbie was reading those verses, just we were talking about this, Robbie and I were talking earlier this morning about context. You know, passages in their context. You, you lose a lot of the richness of Bible verses when you don't pay attention to the context. Well, the context of the verses that Robbie read, he read the first verse, you know, present yourself, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, be transformed. But also right after that, Paul introduces to the church at Rome about spiritual gifts. And, and one of the things I was noticing when I'd ask Robbie to read this, the passage this morning, was really those are when, you know, sometimes you can't really define a specific spiritual gift that you have. But we know that gifts are in two categories, right? They both start with S. I've said this a thousand times. Peter puts them in two categories. All spiritual gifts fall in one of two categories. They're either serving gifts or speaking gifts. So, all those serving gifts that are listed both in 1 Corinthians 12 and in uh, Romans 12, uh, he, the fruits of those, some of the things that Robbie read are the fruits of being a servant of Christ. Exhorting one another. Loving one another. So you are using your gifts even though you may not be able to say, I have this specific gift. Just want to let you know that. <clears throat> I'm, uh, I'm in pretty sad shape to be honest with you. I, I was thinking about that. I, I can't hardly stand. I can't see it. Sitting's worse. Those of you who've had hip issues know Sitting's bad, then getting up is even worse. But um, but I was up here, and then I've had you know so many neck surgeries. I can't look up anymore. One of the worst things for anybody, Jim Schultz knows this. Anybody's had neck surgery for me, having it in the front and back, I can't do this. So I can't look up. I can't stand. I was trying to look at the screen, and I can't, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. So I had to act like I knew the words to some of those songs. So anyway. God's good. Uh, also, you know, it's not funny. Uh, I love it when you get around senior adults, and I'm a senior adult. Senior saints love to one-up one another. Okay? And so, I, you have to go... I'll just tell you this little story. Um, I had to go to the joint, the, the joint clinic do a class. Okay? So... Uh, and so you're there, and our class probably had 10 in it, and beyond, thank you to Jesus, most of them were older than me, which is good and bad, but everybody was you know, telling their sob stories about how many surgeries they had, right? And I don't usually say anything, to be honest with you, until somebody really makes me mad. And, or they, I think they're really just blowing smoke. I don't like to talk about it. 
But there's somebody's running their mouth off in our class, and they were talking about uh, having all these surgeries. And uh, so they, somebody asked me about my pain. Anyways, the late, one of the ladies knew about my pain pump, the lady leading the class. They have to know that when you go into surgery. And so it came up, and, I, and so somebody said, well, how did they... And he, so when I told them I'd had seven neck surgeries, that kind of shut some of them up, right? <laughs> seven. I don't walk around talking about that. Well, then I think, well, no. Then I have to fill out that piece of paper, all these surgeries you've had. You have to go on the back sheet and keep... And I'm thinking, good grief. This is pathetic. Anyway, but aren't you glad? Now think about this. Of course, I've inherited genetically my dad and some of these same issues. But wonder if I live to be 200 years of age living like this. Listen, to forbid Adam from eating the fruit, the tree of life. That's why the cherubim are out there. Because now we, we are set free from this body of death, aren't we? So, the, the, one day, and that's why the promise of the resurrected body, one day we're going to have a perfect body, but it's not in this world. So that's the hope we have. One of the great promises is a glorified body. Praise the Lord. Amen? Because I don't care how old you are, uh, your body is decaying. And... Uh, once you get past your 30s and those peak years, you know, it's, and it makes you realize, we're, hey, you hate the curse. All of it's because of the curse of sin. And God cursed man physically and He cursed the earth. And we're all living witnesses to that. Amen? It's just not the same. Your Bible's open to Romans chapter 13. And when I think about the book of Romans, um, before I read the verses, I'm going to read some verses at the end, uh, beginning at verse 11. Romans is Paul's greatest work. Okay, Really, it's the, it's the greatest theological book in the whole Bible. Um, the Reformation, if you know anything about re- the Reformation, when Martin Luther uh, in 1517 the Church of England, or what we would consider the, the, the Catholic Church, was, was, um, was violating Scripture and was keeping Scripture out of the hands of man and the popes and the priests were disobeying. And so Martin Luther was reading the book of Romans and as a monk he got saved reading the book of Romans. Which started, so he, then he realized that half the stuff that was going on was not biblical that you're saved by grace, not through works and not through doing paying money or whatever, honoring the Pope or praying to Mary. You're saved. Anyway, so he, he nails this complaint to the Catholic Church. It's called the... It was a thesis. The, the 93 complaints against the church. He nailed it to, the, to a church door in Wittenberg, uh, Germany. Anyway, it started, but it started because he was reading and he got to Romans 8. You can study, uh, when you study um, those that founded uh, Methodist, I'm sorry, I've lost their name. What's the name? Wesley. The Wesleys were converted 
and transformed by reading the book of Romans. It's just an incredible book. Before I read Romans 13, verses 11 through 14, just look at two verses, okay? Go to Romans 5. I'm just going to do two verses. Romans 5. We use this when you're doing the Roman road of salvation. You use Romans 5. Listen to how profound this is, okay? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and that was a big, one, one of the big solas of the Reformation was justification by faith, of faith alone. Uh, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, now think about that. Judicial, justified, just as if you had never sinned. That's what justification means. It's judicial. It's a forensic word. It's a court word. But it's in the heart and the mind of God that everybody who believes in Jesus savingly through repentance and trust and are saved, he, they're justified by that faith. Just like Abraham was. So when you believe, it's judicially. Now I'm not talking about practically. I don't live sinless. But judicially... From the courtroom of God, it's just as if you had never sinned. Justified. So he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Listen, you could live your Christian life knowing that one verse. Go to Romans 8. So if you're here today, and you're not saved, and you think it's all a joke, you have to, you, then you have to decide why did Jesus come and why did He die on a cross? You have to w- work through all that. But you cannot be justified by your own works. You just don't, it doesn't work that way. We're justified by faith. Um, that's why we say salvation is in Christ alone. One of the other solas, they call them the five solas of the Reformation, there's faith alone, but there's in Christ alone. Uh, sola Christos. Matter of fact, I have that on my checks. Uh, most people don't know what it's saying, but it's Latin. Sola Christos. In Christ alone. So there's sal- salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation Look at that. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, no condemnation. Isn't that incredible? This has everything to do with when you meet Him in judgment. When you meet Christ face to face and you meet Him to be judged. And it does use the word judgment. It's called the judgment seat. That seat of judgment is far different than for those that are lost at the great white throne. Because at our judgment seat, you're not there to be condemned. There's no condemnation. That's why it's about your service and your lack of or your commitment to the biblical lifestyle. It's not about condemnation. So, we're justified by faith and there is no condemnation to those who are in. That is incredible. That, that, those two verses can sustain the Christian life.
Now we're back in Romans chapter 13. Folks, I want you to know how important the Bible is. I kind of did a little sermonette last Sunday about the, uh, the importance of God's Word and, and the authority of God's Word. You know, I, we use 2 Timothy chapter 3 that, that God's Word, we use the word inspired. And, and I understand why we use that word, but it's really not inspired. It's the Word of God is exhaled by God. What I mean is, the word uh, inspired really is better God-breathed. If you read it in ESV in 2 Timothy 3, it's the breath of God. And so he took these men, about 40 different authors, and he breathed his word in them, and then they wrote it down. And so we believe, that's why we believe in the verbal, inerrant, infallible word of God. We believe the Bible to be without error in its original form because it's God's Word. Now, let me ask you something. When Jesus lived on this earth, the Old Testament had been completed for hundreds of years. Okay, They even had translated the Old Testament into Greek. And it was called the Septuagint. That was several years before Jesus was born. The Septuagint was made so Jews who had been in the Roman Empire for many years and had really lost the ability to, to use Hebrew like they once did. They were using Greek and Latin and Aramaic. So they translated Hebrew into Greek, the Old Testament into Greek. And so it's called the Septuagint. And more than likely, the Bible that Jesus would quote from would, be, would have been the Septuagint. But, but that word, Jesus knew the Old Testament. Now I want you to think about this. So either, now think about this. So, the Old Testament had been canonized for hundreds of years, about 200 years. When Jesus, who is the Word, who is God in human form, either the Bible in the Old Testament is completely trustworthy, either it's, it's either trustworthy, or it has errors and Jesus didn't know it, or it has errors and Jesus wouldn't tell us. So which one do you think it is? Is it without error or does it have errors and Jesus wouldn't tell us? Or it has errors and Jesus didn't know? No, it doesn't have errors. Because either the other two options would turn Jesus into a, a common man. He's God. And so we can trust the Old Testament. And then Jesus says in John 14, I'm going to give these apostles my word and I'm going to bring to their remembrance everything I need them to write down. So He, Christ, promised that the New Testament would be breathed by God as well. So folks, we can trust the Bible. It's like this. When Jesus called the disciples, you know, down by the sea, they were fishermen. He's down there, if you're reading in, in uh, the early part of Matthew. And it says, and Jesus, He saw them fishing. There were some that were fishing. They were casting nets. Some were in the boat fixing nets. So he goes to the fisher, the guys that are fishing. It's Peter and Andrew. Jesus speaks and says with a command, follow me. And it says, this is around Matthew 4, 19, immediately they put their nets down. It really means they threw their nets down and they followed him. Then Jesus goes a little bit further 
And John and James are in the boat with their dad, Zebedee, mending their nets. Had some torn nets. Jesus says, follow me. And immediately they left their boat, their nets, is what the text says, and their dad, and they followed him. Folks, that's the authority of God's Word. Now, that's what we ought to do. That's how we ought to take God's Word. When God speaks, we ought to act. And it should be everything. It, it should dictate everything that we do. God's Word is His Word to mankind. This, this is the book that guides our lives. Well, at the end of Romans, we're getting towards the end of Romans, in Romans chapter 13, there's 16 chapters. And the first eight, just to let you know, the first eight chapters of Romans was doctrine. And then you get to chapter 9 to the end. Most of those are application. He's making application. There is a, a, a theological uh, uh, statement about election and Israel and our salvation. Uh, when you get over there to, to Romans, uh, get to Romans 11, really 9 through 11, do some of that. But anyway, it's mainly doctrine, the first eight chapters, of which we read two verses, and then 9 through the end is about application. The verses we're fixing to read are really biblical, biblical application. Before I read verse 11, your Bibles are open there, so let's learn something together. Look, look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Here's some verses that you've heard before, but you might not have thought about or remembered they were in Romans 13. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And folks, if a person is not subject in submission to, if a child is not in submission to his parents, he will not be in submission to the government, right? And usually when you see somebody that's violating laws haphazardly, you can assume that they have no respect for any kind of authority at home. So, children, of course a lot of them are over there, but your parents are doing you a favor when they lead you and call for you to submit to their leadership. It's God's design. Jesus did it. Uh, I think it's in Luke 2. Uh, says, And Jesus went down with them back to Nazareth. And then it says, And He was submissive to His mom and dad. But He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities, resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, not only temporal judgment, but eternal judgment. But there's judgment when you don't obey authority. Anyway, verse 11. I want to read verses 11 through, 11 through 14. Paul says, besides this... Now he wrote this from Corinth, by the way. He was at Corinth for three years. And so he... Uh, 18 months, I'm sorry. And he wrote uh, the book of Romans while he was at Corinth. We know that from reading some verses in verse chapter 16. We might get there. But, but we, because he mentions one of the leaders of, of the city of Corinth was with him. Besides this, verse 11, he says, Besides this, you know the time. Now he's been talking about, you know, 
uh, owe nobody anything except to love them. He's been given all these like household applications to the Christian life. Uh, uh, he mentions the ten, part of the Ten Commandments, the ones that are relational. He doesn't mention the first four that are us and God. He mentions the ones that deal with man, man to man. But then he says, besides this, you know the time. You know the time. Now, if I were to ask you to put into words what time we're living in, and ask you to use the word days, you would probably say, we are living in the last days. Am I right? Am I right? I'm right. We, and again, I'm not going to go into all that. I mean, most of you have heard the explanation of that. But if, if it's a week, if it's 7,000 years that God's economy is dealing with, and the Bible deals with 6,000 years. We're at the 6,000th year now. That's six days, a thousand years where there'll be rest, and Jesus will rule, will be the seventh year or the seventh day. So it'll be 7,000 years. So the first 4,000 years, the first four days was the Old Testament history. The last two days have been 2,000 years of the church. So we're living in the last days. So Paul says to these believers, besides this, he's been pleading for believers to obey the Bible, to follow Christ, to love the church. So he says, besides this, you know the time. It's the last days. And look how, look how he puts it. He says, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. So obviously, Paul's saying that some believers, though it's the last days or though it's the last hour, have been apathetic or have been unattentive to the things of God like they should be. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation, I love this, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And of course, this is an obvious statement, isn't it? I mean, Paul's writing this as a, as a believer that's, you know, he's probably in his 40s. And obviously being saved for 17 years, 20 years, however long he's been saved, for him, he's just saying that salvation... Now, not, not, not the salvation, the, the position, okay? The position of salvation settled. You understand? He, he's, not, he's not putting our salvation in Christ in jeopardy. I mean, we know that we're justified by faith. We know that there's no condemnation. So he's not talking about that there's speculation that we might be saved. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking about when the consummation of salvation appears, when Christ returns, when everything that we've ever hoped for happens, He either raptures the church or we die and meet Jesus face to face. He says our salvation is nearer to us now 
than when we first believed. Now we know historically that's true. We're, again, the church age. is, And again, think when Paul wrote that, that was almost 2,000 years ago. Let's say he wrote that in 58 A.D. So it's almost been 2,000 years since. And of course, if, if he was arguing or, or pleading with believers in the first century that they had become apathetic and had been unfaithful and not obedient because they were lax, here we are 2,000 years later and we have... Do you know how many more prophecies have to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. Now think what I just said. Do you know how many prophecies have to be fulfilled before Jesus can rapture His church? None. In the first century, the salvation, the approaching Savior of the world, the approaching One, the Savior who was going to return, those prophecies, there were several prophecies that had to be fulfilled before he could come back. There are none. So when I look at this, Paul pleading to us as believers about thinking about the, let's just say the consummation of all things. One day, we've been studying on Wednesday nights, Christ is going to come. He, he, he's going to come and rapture his church, take believers out, and then He's going to bring judgment, just like He did to Noah in Noah's day, just like He said. And He gave those. He said these two things in Matthew, as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot. God saves His people, brings judgment. So we are approaching the consummation of all things, life as we know it. And folks, that ought to... He uses this idea of being sober. It ought to sober us up. So... So he says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us. I like the us, the plurality of that. Uh, Obviously, eventually this book being the book of Romans, the capital of the Roman Empire, obviously, this book would be you know, it would be spread all throughout the Roman Empire. And throughout that Roman Empire, you know, Paul had already established dozens of churches. That's the us. He mentions other us's. He meant, think about it. In chapter 16, which is the last chapter of Romans, Paul mentions 30, 35 different people just in Romans 16. Many of them he had led to Christ. So, yes, it's us. He says, it says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So, folks, not only when you're thinking about God's Word, not only is it about the consummation of all things, Jesus has to come back. Jesus, the Messiah, was to rule the world. He didn't do that in His first coming. And folks, for every verse that talked about His first coming, did Jesus come one time? Yes. For every verse that talks about His first coming, which was fulfilled 2,000 years, there's three that talk about His second coming. So He's coming. So what Paul's saying is, hey, the consummation, of all, it's nearer than it's ever been. So it's about consummation, 
And then it's about expectation. For those of us that are saved that Christ is coming again, there is an, there is an expectation of obedience. It's nearer to us now than when we first believed. That's an implication there is we're here for those who don't believe. We have this massive responsibility to share the gospel with those that are not here. So Paul, when he's pleading with the Roman believers, he mentions the consummation of the end of time, the, what we would even call the last days, the last days prophecy, and then he gets to the expectation. Then in verse 12, look what he says. He kind of makes a, I, I, you may even say an observation, a better word might even be interpretation of the times. Look what he says. He says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Now, be honest with you, there may be a little touch here of, uh, of what maybe a Roman soldier, he, he's going to tell us some things in a minute where you can kind of visualize a, a soldier that's off duty and does some things at night that he ought not do and he's not ready to perform the next day. But he says the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Now, really, talking about those of us that are believers, we don't walk in the darkness, we walk in the light. You know, we have that picture, the daytime. Paul argues to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, we're 1 Thessalonians 5, he calls us day people, he says, you're not of the night, you're of the day. Because in the daytime, you can see and you know how to live. Well, we're people of the day. He's reminding us that we're the ones that have been given the light and we can see. There, there is no more nighttime for us. We're no longer living in the darkness. We're living in the daytime. We know where we're going. We know how to get there. We're walking in the day. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. And then he gives us three commands. Look what he says in this interpretation of where, how we're going to... So there's consummation, there's expectation, and now there's interpretation or observation. He says the night's far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Um, cast off the works of darkness. It, it's, it's the word, it's the same word, this word cast off. The, so, and by the way, the, the way it's written in the language, this is something that's not going to happen unless you do it, right? There's many things in our salvation that Christ takes care of. You're justified by faith. He secures you, He indwells you, and seals you with the Spirit. He does all those things. But the way this is written, we have to do the work. We're not working for our salvation, but we're the ones that has to cast off the works of darkness, the works of the flesh. We're the one we have to do that. The idea, the same word is used when, when Stephen was stoned in Acts 7, and, and the people that were <clears throat> killing Stephen, before they started throwing the stones to stone him, they took their outer cloaks off. 
And it describes that in Acts 7. And they took it off and laid it at the feet of Paul. These are the same words. We cast off the works of darkness. So, so we're, we're to throw them out. Uh, uh, Hebrews 12.1 says the same thing. Uh, we're running that since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also run the race, casting off the weight that so easily entangles us. So we set it aside. So, so there's things that we're supposed to be doing. We, you know, really this falls under the, the doctrine of sanctification. We know it does. You know what he's talking about. That we're to set these works of darkness aside. Look what he says. The night's far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness. Command, by the way, it's not an option. And put on the armor of light. So we cast off the works of darkness. That doesn't complete the task that we're responsible for. So we set aside the works of darkness. Uh, Another idea that Paul gives us, he gave to Timothy. One idea is, take. it's the same idea of taking off clothes. I mean, taking off vile or dirty clothes. We take off. Another way he described this to Timothy was to run away from. You know, there's certain things that we avoid. Well, that's what he's saying. There's deeds of darkness that we have nothing to do with. He says in Ephesians, they ought to ought to be. They even shouldn't be named among. We shouldn't even talk about them because they're the works of darkness. So he says, "Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor." And of course, uh, "put on" is just the opposite. It's the word, our English word, endued. We're endued. So we're so we're to endue. It says, put on the armor of life. And the word the word armor there is not talking about just the breastplate. It's the weapons. It's all the weapons that you might use going to battle. That's why I had the military term, the idea a while ago. So he says, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor or the weapons of light. So we have this responsibility, this call to be dedicated as a soldier to take off and to put on His armor. And immediately in your mind, you should be thinking of Ephesians 6, which lists the armor of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10 calls it the weapons of our warfare. It's the same word. So, Whatever it takes, Paul lists in Ephesians 6, all these different things that we're to do. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet of salvation. The, you know, all these things we're to do, we're to put off the works of darkness and to put on the weapons as children of light. So he talks about, for us as believers, He talks about the consummation of the end of the age. He talks about our expectations because salvation is nearer now than it's ever been. He talks about an observation that we're no longer to do the works of darkness but to put on the weapons of of walking in the light. Then he takes this dedication even further. 
He said, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. So kind of in my mind, as I, I, I said, that's a pretty strong statement. And so what you think is maybe the soldiers that Paul had in mind that the, and he was around Roman soldiers all the time that you have this maybe this dichotomy where at nighttime they would participate in, in these acts of immorality and, and, and see how wicked they could be and, and would not be ready to be a soldier the next day. And for us, this, this can't happen to us. It shouldn't happen to us. We have this responsibility to be dedicated to the work of Christ. So let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousies. So he talks about, I mean, I just love this because he talks about the end of the age, the last days. He talks about dedication. He talks about expectations. But then he talks about, for me and you, our identification. You really could, I really could have just gone to verse 14. But this is who we identify with. But he says, put on. And again, this is, he's not talking about our salvation. Obviously, he's talking about, though, he's talking to people that have been saved. So he says, Put on, same word as he set up in verse 12. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctification, Christ-likeness, whatever term you want to use. Put Him on. And we learned last week, the only way you can put Christ on is through... Not through your mind, not through a feeling, not through music. You put Him on by His Word. If you want to meet Jesus face to face and be like Him, you have to know and obey His Word. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, chapter 4 through verse 4, tell us that. So it's a, when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you could be saying, get into His Word. Know His Word. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we must be doing. And then he says, and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now let me just stop there. Make no provisions for the flesh. It is the, to make no provisions. I'll finish with this. Make no provisions for the flesh. Folks, I don't... I'm just telling you the honest truth. I'm going to tell you a little bit what the word provisions mean. Make no provisions for the flesh. I don't need to be making provisions for the flesh to struggle with the flesh. The old nature rears its ugly head in me all the time. At the drop of a hat, I can say, think, 
are due just like an unsaved person. And you can too. But what Paul's saying is, not only should we be putting Christ on and obeying the Word, surrendering to the work of the Spirit, all the things you can think about about discipleship, but make no provisions. That word provisions is the word think and the word prior or before. It's what I say. Don't be thinking about the works of the flesh. To be thoughtful of what, folks, you know for a fact that before you came, or even as a Christian, and especially before you came to Christ, some of the wicked, vile, ungodly stuff that you did, sometimes in your mind, the devil wants you to glory in your disobedience. It's that kind of thinking where we think about the life of disobedience. So he says, make no provisions. Don't even give it. Don't open the door because it's going to come in, right? So you, it's, a, it's a matter of what you think. This goes back to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Look, it's just what you think. So, so this, this identifying with Christ means that I think about Him, I think about His Word, and I don't think about the old nature. I don't think about the wicked world. So it's two-sided. So that's why he says in verse 2 of chapter 12, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. This is how you renew your mind. You abandon the faults of the flesh and you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you do. You, you're mindful. You're mindful of what it means to be a child of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're mindful of what it means to be saved. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And our, our hearts are open to the Lord Jesus this morning and all morning I've been felt led to have an invitation, so we're going to do that now. But our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And folks, I want you to think about the scriptures. Think about the, the promises of being justified by faith, of there being absolutely no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. But at the at the very same time, Though our salvation is secure, our personal obedience, our personal sanctification is progressive. It's a process. And just like the Romans, I would dare think that there are a lot of believers that are in this room and probably many more who are not here that have been piddling around in the deeds of the darkness. That a lot of the things that you think about, you invest in, you ponder over, are things of the night. They're not of the day. Folks, for believers, listen to that, for believers who have been justified and are no longer condemned, Jesus deserves 
better. So maybe today you're going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. Maybe today is your personal reformation. Maybe you're sick and tired of living the Christian life mediocre, apathetic. You're just a pew sitter. And really, to be honest with you, in the public square, many times you embarrass the very name of Christ. Today is a, a call to repentance and faith. Not to be saved, but to be obedient. I pray that if you're here today, and today's a day that there needs to be a, a, a renewal, I, I pray you'll do that today. Obviously, you can do that right where you are. Maybe you want to speak with me. I'll be down front if you want to come and pray with me. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace and mercy. Accept our repentance now, we pray in Christ's name. We stand and we sing, I surrender all. You know it well. All to Jesus, I surrender. If you're here today and you need to make a fresh commitment to the Lord Jesus, you can come to the altar, kneel where you are, come speak with me. As God leads, you come right now. You know it. making no provisions for the flesh. Listen, this happens to you every day. It happens to me every day. I'm just telling you, I, I'm a sinner saved by grace just like you. I don't live in some special bubble and I'm never tempted. I can't find my socks on Sunday morning either, just like you. Things happen at my house. But like, we, we watch a lot of British TV and so we're trying to learn which ones are good and which ones are bad. But you'll turn it on a show and you'll think it's going to be good. And all of a sudden, there'll be some language that's embarrassing, right? You know, I, I, I can, they can use the, I'm not even going to say the letter, but just things that are just so vile or there'll be a naked woman. or, And it says, make no provisions. I don't need to hear vile language. I don't need to see a naked woman. So, so, but now if I want to play in the darkness, right? If I'm going to play in the darkness, I'll watch the show and justify it that I'm a believer and it's not going to affect me. That's a lie of the devil. Because the Bible says whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is right, let your mind dwell on these things. So folks, when we think about casting off the deeds of darkness. When we think about making no provisions, folks, this is every moment of every day. So it means something that we can sing, I 
surrender all. Do you really mean it? Think about that. I pray to God you do. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Thank you so much for your presence. Don't forget Wednesday nights at the park, 5.30 to 7.30. If you need any details, uh, see, see Robbie. After I pray, you're welcome to go out under the tree. I'm assuming under the pecan tree. And uh, we, have, we have corn. Now, I think Sam. Sam, who all helped you pick uh, the corn? I think Keith and uh, Carter Blackburn. Oh, John Carter. Huggins, Marty Mark. Lindsey Christian even came. He's not a member of Help Us Pick. Right. Tommy Hoover and Jim Schultz. Thank you. Us. We picked it in about an hour. Great, so. great. Well, folks, go out there and get you some uh, fresh corn. Thank in your mind and heart. Thank Brother Ken for that. Uh, he called me last night about 8 o'clock. Make sure you're going to do it. Good. And he said hi to everybody. He's Good. down on the coast of Florida at yeah. annual family reunion. So. Yeah, he's a condo owner now. Anyway, let's pray. Thank you all so much for being here. Father, we love You. and I, I pray, Lord, I, I can't see the heart of the people. I, I know my own heart. And, and so I know theirs in some way. And God, when we sing that, that what we call an invitation hymn, that I surrender all. God, I, at this moment in time, in me, I, I do mean that. But Lord, I know that the moment I leave the protection of the gathering of the saints, the world is out there and it wants to cast that darkness in my mind and heart. Lord, help us to be people of the day. Father, help us to put the Lord Jesus Christ on. God, may we be, may we be an epistle, as Paul told the Corinthians. May our lives be living epistles to everybody we see. We leave here today thinking, I surrender all. Lord, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your justification by faith. Thank You for no condemnation in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank You.